0: Hi, welcome back to the Come Follow Me Book of Mormon Central podcast with your hosts Lynn Wilson and John Cho.
1: Hello, shalom. Nice to be with you again.
0: So I want to start with our three key questions again. You know, how does this bring me closer to Christ? How does the Book of Mormon help me understand the Old Testament? And how does this help me live a more Christ-like life?
1: And as we look just at the Book of Numbers, I really feel like all three of those play a major role because we're looking at this journey of the children of Israel as they become a people of God, you know, they're becoming a holy people during this 38 years. And those that have bad habits are asked yeah. to leave <laughs> or get another chance in heaven to try again. And it's a just sort of a continuation after Exodus, isn't it? Right. Leviticus just sort of was put in there to explain how to run the temple. while well, they're in Mount Sinai, but Exodus got us from Egypt to Sinai. And then for 10 chapters, we're still at Sinai, even though they're only there for two years, they spent a long time Right here at the base of Sinai, at the beginning of the book of Numbers. And as I look at, take a bird's eye view at the book of Numbers, we start down at Sinai for 10 chapters and they begin their journey. They go through the wilderness of Peroran and Zin and they travel for a couple years. And then it ends as they're up north, right ready to enter into the promised land in the plain of Moab. And it's a great little travelogue for 38 years. But I think the reason why we call it the Book of Numbers is because of the censuses.
0: I was going to ask you that. So we have, you know, Genesis through Exodus and so on. It's very narrative-driven. And then a little stop with Leviticus. Leviticus yeah. And then we're back to Numbers, but it, it's named Numbers for census reasons. So tell us, tell us, yeah, us more about I, that.
1: There's three in this text, one at the beginning, one at the end, and then in the middle, or not really in the middle, chapter three is Levitical. But the beginning and the end, they're counting their military They're making sure that the—how many people do they have who are men over 20 so that we can go in and take the promised land? And the initial hope is they've been in Sinai for a year. They're going to get ready. They're going to send out their spies for another year, you know, take another year to get up and do that. And then they're hoping to go in and take it. So they need to know how many people are available to help conquer the natives of that land in order to take it over. And unfortunately they make some poor choices and they have to change their mind. And so they don't get that opportunity. So they, they all die out and it's only those that were under 20 that were not counted who are now able to go into the promised land. And so we have to have a second census right before we're going into the promised land 38 years later in order to determine how many people are able to fight. And I think it's sweet because this way you know exactly how many were killed too. And as we know from the book of Joshua, very few are. Most of them are saved by the hand of the Lord, that the Lord fights their battles. But the middle census is interesting because he needs to find out how many Levitical priesthood holders are available to help in the temple. But instead of counting them from the age 20, or I thought they would be counted from age 30 because it says in the law of Moses that you're not allowed to serve as a priest in the tabernacle until you're 30 years old. That's the year of authority. But they start counting them at one month old. And it's interesting, interesting. to look at this okay. census because it really, there are very few Levites. And The Levites are going to take the place of the firstborn. In Egypt, the firstborn was made hallowed or made holy. And so now, instead of the Lord taking the firstborn, he now will take the tribe of Levi. And they will be the ones who will be his servants and able to serve him in the tabernacle and carry the tabernacle, carry the portable temple from place to place. You know, it's, it's their responsibility. They do not get the land. They need to serve the Lord and they will be paid by the tithes of the children of Israel.
0: So let me just clarify here. So instead of taking the firstborn of every family across all of Israel, to serve it's, the Lord. it's really just the entire tribe of Levi.
1: Yep. Is that right? Yep. Okay. Yep. And the Levitical priesthood is different than the Aaronic. They have different assignments, according to the book of Leviticus, that described that the descendants of Aaron will be the ones who are actually laying their hands on on the head of the animals, of the sacrifices. And the descendants of Aaron will be the ones who actually go into the sanctuary. But the Levites really are the ones who do all the hard work of the, hefting the animals and butchering and cleaning and the music. And the, they really have an enormous need at the tabernacle for the Levitical tribe. Do you want to look at the numbers?
0: Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Let's look at the numbers. I mean, it, it, it's called numbers. We yeah, have to look yeah, at it, yeah, right? Yeah.
1: Well, I really feel like the um, the numbers aren't key to the themes. But So we'll do the numbers really quickly and we'll go back to the themes. But Fair. Judah is the largest, 74,000. 74,600 in Judah. And the next largest is Dan, 62,700. And that goes all the way down to Manasseh as the smallest. But remember, Manasseh and Ephraim were both Joseph. That's right. So if we combine Manasseh and Ephraim, we get almost as many as Judah. So we get, you know, 72,000 or something. But with Manasseh as the smallest of 32,200 men who can fight in the military, it really puts in context the number from the second census where the Levites are only 22,000. And that's from the time they're born all the way through. Every male in Levi is only 22,000. Interesting. So he's he's way down the list compared to the other side. Because the others are why. counted
0: from their twenty, So the yeah, 74,000, yeah. so the 74,000. 74,
1: yeah, exactly. You know, even Reuben, 46,000. Gad, 45,000. You know, the numbers are all here in, in the chapter one and two. And then again, they're repeated in chapter 26, where they do the counting again. But that's the new generation. That's the... Young kids all grown up. And interestingly, as we look at some of the charts on that one, eight of the tribes have increased in numbers, even though there are far fewer people. So they've been blessed with a posterity is what that means, I think. And four of the five that decrease don't decrease substantially, just just a little bit, except for Simeon. And Simeon, for some reason, has an enormous decrease. He loses more than half of his population of his Between posterity. Between chapter
0: 1 and chapter 26. 26.
1: Yeah, when the old folks are killed off, the first generation is killed off and the new generation is raised up, he loses more than half of his population. Everybody else stays just about the same or grows. Eight of them grow. But you know, I the reason why I, this is such a powerful idea of looking at these numbers in these two censuses is even though the people are about the same number initially, this older generation were so um religiously they've had such infidelity. They're almost callous in their gratitude. You know, they they don't have any appreciation of God. They're they're blind to God's goodness and his miracles and his blessings and his kindness, whereas the second generation have been the ones who have obeyed and listened and carried through. And that takes me back to what I see as one of the themes, and I don't know if you saw this one, but God's faithfulness, that he is involved in the details of our lives. He's involved in the details of the history and even though Israel is a rebellious people, God is faithful. And, you know, it's a book of murmurings. It's a book of choice and accountability. What, what are some of the themes you saw in it?
0: I mean, the overall theme I think of this is this is, for me, a book about the tribe. This is the nation. Oh,
1: coming, becoming a, na- a fortified nation. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah, yes, of Because
0: I'm just thinking through Exodus, again, in the historical context here. You know, they were slaves, right? Yes. They had a slave mentality. Yes. And there's this period of purification in the wilderness. And and the wilderness is really important, I think. This is a place of want, right? You know, Mm -hmm. that's what it means to be in the wilderness. And so you really, there's something about purifying about that, you know, looking to the future and and also from the past uh, in, in terms of the books we've read, individual purification has happened with Jacob and so on. This one feels a little different,
1: yes, but it is really about purity. Yeah. There's their physical appearance, their intimacy, their dietary, all these laws are are spelled out here. Their heart has to be purified. I think you really hit on something
0: beautiful. you know this is this is a time where where the children are growing up with a temple, right? Yes. you know when 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 did that last happen? Okay, ever, let's ever, right? let's talk
1: about that temple. That's chapter two. Let's jump in. So we had the census in chapter one. And Moses wants them to be arranged around the tabernacle. Did you notice that the Levites are the ones who are encircling the tabernacle and then everybody else? So they actually have 13 tribes because the Levites are making that circle around the temple. And then each of the cardinal directions has three of the tribes. And they're very carefully placed where you have the most need of possible armor and the most need of military might is where you have the larger tribes. So Judah is not facing Egypt, who's already been decimated. They're facing the northern, um, eastern sides. You know, and anyway, they they just are arranged in such a way there. But more importantly than the military might, I think, is the fact that they're arranged around the temple, that their doors are to be facing the temple, that they are to be focused on the Spirit of the Lord. And it's that wonderful presence of the cloud that directs them. It's that cloud that becomes their liahona, tells them when to go, and that pillar of fire at night that represents not only the Spirit, but God's warmth and light. And oh, the symbolism, going back to my analogy that this exodus cycle that these people go through for these 40 years is such a type of not only Christ, but the plan of salvation and what we have to go through in our individual lives.
0: Of course, you can't help but not think of King Benjamin too.
1: Oh and everything they've gone through, right? Of course. Good job. Boné and in the Book of Mormon, John. <laughs> King Benjamin had all of his people already in their booths. You know, I've often, when I first started reading that, I thought, wow, everybody could come immediately as soon as they're called. Well, I assume they were already gathering for one of the pilgrimage feasts, the feast of the tabernacle or something, and they're all facing the temple and the Lord and listenings. And yeah, we should talk more about that in, in when we get to the Feast of the Tabernacles, which is mentioned here in the book of Leviticus. Um, but it's it's a few chapters later. I, I don't want to miss chapter three. That's where the the tribe of Levi receives their assignment to be the priesthood holders when the firstborn are taken. And Levi is asked to carry the ark and the furnishings and everything. And I think, isn't it interesting that the Levites get more work to do, and yet it becomes a blessing and an honor to serve God. And by the time of the New Testament, it was the greatest blessing of all for one of your daughters to marry into the Levitical line so that your grandchildren might have an opportunity to serve in the temple. And as I see this extra work put on um, saints and some callings take more effort than others— I have to say it's always an honor and a blessing to serve in God's kingdom. Yeah. And I'm sure that some people can murmur just like uh, they did then too. It, it's, it gets hard. I don't mean to suggest that it's not. But but when you mentioned purity, do you remember in chapter 5, they begin talking about the purity of the leper and what you do. But the thing that stuck out to me in chapter 5 was if a woman were accused of something, if her husband becomes jealous, in other cultures like this time— That woman would have been out. You know, that just was not an option. And yet, in this law of Moses, the woman gets the benefit of the doubt. It is weighted in her favor, and she is innocent until proven guilty. And it sounds sort of crazy the way that they decide if she's innocent or guilty or not, but obviously the Lord's hand was involved in it. And I see it. uh, this need for a priest to intercede and the priest to make these decisions as another need for Christ. Christ is the one who will say you are innocent and you are cleansed and he so would defend us. I can, see, I can us.
0: see more of this because, I mean, they're re- reconstructing an entire society over the course of 40 years, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And this idea of, of an intersidiary, you know, as a priest, not as a government official. I mean, I suppose it is a government yeah, official, no, but, they but have, this is, it is their, you're right, this, it's your priest. Them. So this this to me is, again, an addition, you know, it covers a lot of this in Leviticus, but an additional symbol in the preparation of Christ, right?
1: Yes, they point to Christ. They're part of this exodus cycle that is to prepare them for their promised Messiah. And then in addition to this preparing a people of purity and holiness, we go in chapter 6 to this Nazarite vow. And of course, I immediately think of John the Baptist was supposed to be a Nazareth for, Nazarite for life, as was Samson and Samuel. You know, But there's a lot of people who just had a period of time that they were to be, take up on this Nazarite vow.
0: So tell me about this Nazarite vow because well, this comes up in the New up Testament. Well, let's chapter six. Yeah, you know, and, yeah. Um, so even no
1: rate. Ra- n- they first can have their food is limited. Okay. So nothing from the vine, no wine, no grapes, no raisins, no juice, and just as a reminder, the water is so impure that in the ancient world you often diluted your wine ten parts water, and then one part wine would be enough to purify the water. Right. So when they talk about wine, um, you usually don't have – you usually aren't getting drunk from it unless it's prepared in its strength. And so sometimes you you hear of uh, uh, that happening, but most of the time it's, it's quite diluted because it was too ex- costly. You know, it was too expensive. But um, the second thing that they did differently is no razor was to come to their head. They had long – they were to let their hair and their beard grow. And I don't know if you remember, but the Egyptians were all shaven and it was an abomination for them. I don't know if that's one of the reasons, but I do think it's interesting that the Nazarite has to eat differently, they look differently, and then they have to act differently. Their third thing is they can't go near the dead, even if it's their own family members, if it's the time that they are under that vow, which would include a much longer period for John the Baptist and Samuel. And obviously, Samson did not live his vow, and the Lord took away his strength um, at some periods of time, but he brought it back also when he humbled himself and asked for forgiveness and— by that time, he was blind and a disaster. We'll we'll get to Samson later. Yeah, we don't need yeah. to go into Samson. But right after this beginning part of chapter 6 with their the ability to say, I want you to be separate and different. I want you to look different and act different. We get that beautiful priestly benediction, Numbers 23 to 27. I just love this. Do you mind if I read it or do you yes, want to read on. it? Tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. The Lord Jehovah bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. And they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. Now, I'm sorry, I read a different translation than the King James for part of that. But this is God's wish for the potential followers. I see this is this is what God wants to do. He wants the priest to bless the people with this. He wants the people to have this in their heart and in their mind. I just feel like this is the potential for all of us who try strive to be disciples, that God will have His face to shine upon us, His grace will be upon us, He will bless us, He will keep us. I just love this.
0: There's such a strong break, I believe, from Egypt. I, I keep going back to this because this is this is the again the purification the contrast, period, right? Yeah. Before they're able to enter into the Holy Land, these are the changes He wants to be made, and it needs to be in the hearts of the people, which you know. When you're raised in it, it's a different thing, Mm -hmm. right? Mm
1: -hmm. And I feel like one of the things that is so powerful about this is the oldest scripture we have in Jerusalem is this verse. And it dates back to 600 BC. It dates back to about the time when Babylon is coming in and taking over Jerusalem and taking the people captive and Lehi's family is leaving. And this scripture was found just outside of the old walls of Jerusalem. And guess what it was written on? Have you seen it? Do you I know haven't. about this? No. It's written on metal. The Interesting. oldest scripture we have coming out of 600 BC is on metal, which is another home run for the Book of Mormon story of the brass plates, Right. the Torah, the Old Testament at that time, uh, the Hebrew Bible at that time was written on brass plates. And here, the oldest scripture we know of today is a version of this. It's a little bit shorter. It's a few different words because it's on this tiny, tiny, tiny little scroll that was about the size of the top of your, your pen. Um, It's a pen cap that was scrolled up and found by archaeologists in 1986. I've seen it. I've studied it. It's just fabulous as another witness. But the other thing that was beautiful to me as I look at this is I look at the Book of Mormon. I think, well, maybe this priestly benediction is in our scriptures there. Because it became such an important part of once we got Solomon's temple and then After Solomon's temple is destroyed, Zerubbabel's temple, we know in the New Testament they are already using this, they are still using this priestly benediction. They've now memorized it, they've canonized it. They said every morning the priests recite this, and their hands are raised up in the air, and they make their fingers into certain shapes, uh, their secrets of the creation in this ritual that they recite in their temple worship. And it becomes very important to them later on to have the words exactly right. So I thought, well, I don't know if it had to be exactly right in 600 B.C. because that little scroll is not exactly the same. It's a little bit different. But I thought, I'm just going to look in the Book of Mormon. And um, this is what I found. Uh, Mosiah, chapter 10. May the Lord bless my people. Alma, chapter 7, verse 25. May the Lord bless you and keep your garments spotless in the kingdom of heaven. Alma 38, 15. May the Lord bless your soul and receive you in the last day into his kingdom to sit down in peace. And I could keep going. There's there's a couple others in Mosiah, Alma 58, Helaman 5, Moroni 8, you know, all these times where the high priest is giving a blessing to his people and they use a similar framework and foundation as the priestly benediction, but they don't use it exactly. They start out, may the Lord bless this people. And then they talk about the garment. They talk about spotless. They talk about... The grace of God coming upon them, but it's not word for word. But the message is quite similar. Again, another like sweet reminder. And I think my favorite part of it is: Do you remember that line where it says in Number Six Twenty Six, "The Lord's face will shine upon you"? Right. In the Book of Mormon, that reminded me of Third Nephi, Chapter Seventeen, and where the, he's with the children, and verse twenty-five and twenty-six: "Behold, your little ones." And then he continues on in 26. They cast their eyes towards heaven and they saw the heavens open and they saw the angels descending out of heaven as it were in the midst of fire. And they were encircled round about with fire and the angels did minister unto them. I don't know what it feels like to have, I know what it feels like to have God's grace shine upon me, but to have him smile upon me reminds me of this, this instant here where the Lord's joy is full, where he must have been smiling on those little children Anyway, that was just a, a sweet little connection to the priestly benediction in I like, the, six. I like this
0: priestly benediction side because, you know, again, in context, we're looking at all of these rules. And we'll talk more about this in Deuteronomy too. But, mm-hmm. you know, all these rules are being written down to help guide and, you know, training wheels, basically. Yes, like you, training you wheels have, is you have, image. To, you have to follow these things exactly, you know. But this priestly benediction, you know, with the scrolls you're mentioning, even with the Book of Mormon, a little bit different but always in this context of a priest blessing the congregation, right? Yeah. And so spiritually, those are all the same, right? Yeah. And God's and, they're love they're for a us is different. what it represents. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the, there's a, they're a little different. So it's, it tells me that it's not a rote written no. thing of something we're supposed to do. This is something coming from the heart of this person who's responsible yeah. for yeah. that. And so I think that that's, that's a qualification that, that these things are being written on the hearts of the priest yes. too, right? This is from his heart. And these they, are his words, right? Of, I don't
1: want to defend them inappropriately, but I really feel like the priests were using it as an ordinance almost, and that's why they had it memorized word for word. But I, I don't know. I, I'm just always trying to, I, I just see, you know,
0: in, in breaking with that ordinance, which has its place, you know, Or we, just we using have the it, words from your heart. But yeah, these are words from his heart, just but it's the same, heart. yeah, it's the same, I guess, spiritual touchdown. So, so it shows me that like, okay, this is, you know, here's some rules, but this is coming from the heart.
1: We better jump back into the text. Yes. Uh, Numbers continues on with they're commanded to keep the Passover again, but this time now as free people. So their first year is over and they move on and they're hoping for a quick jaunt up to the promised land. But unfortunately there's another rebellion in chapter 11. And so
0: they're in the middle of wandering for 40 years. They don't know that it's going to be 40 years. No, they right?
1: think now they're ready to go. They've got the tabernacle built. They're ready to go. They head up. They, they begin more murmuring. Actually, I think that there's rebellion from chapter 11 to 25. I, I went through and I almost felt like it was this spiritual boot camp. You know, they're going through this training period, but the murmuring comes in chapter 11 because they don't see the Lord's blessings. And yet I see the Lord giving them natural consequences because they're behaving emotionally like children. <laughs> right. Right. And that's maybe why we call them still the children of Israel. I mean, in chapter 11, they saying, you know, I, I miss these melons and onions so much. I want to go back to slavery just so I can have an onion. You know, I just, I just have to <laughs> chuckle. Our souls, what is this? Verse six, our souls are drying up and there's nothing but manna. So it's
0: miracle food. They don't have to farm for or anything. Oh, and, I
1: know. They just don't appreciate it. And I think that is so true. When sometimes you don't have to work for something, you do not appreciate it to the same degree. And then, of course, we get the Moses needs help. And he calls the 70 and the Lord says, let's get these 70 here working with you. And Joshua observes that some of these people are prophesying. And Joshua comes running over. This is in chapter 11, verse 29. Oh, no, no. Joshua first is in 28. And he says, you know, I, I'm so worried these people are taking over your job. And Moses replies to him, are you jealous on my account? I wish that all of God, the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would place his spirit on them. And I see that as our modern prophets account too. President Nelson in particular has been asking us since he became a prophet in 2018 to be more sensitive to the spirit of the Lord and to strive to have constant ear out for revelation and inspiration as it is renewed in our lives on a daily basis so that we can be prepared to fight off the adversary. And Moses is saying the same thing, you know, oh, I wish the Lord would put his spirit on them and then they'd start behaving And we're so blessed to have the Spirit so that we do know right from wrong and on an even more powerful level. And we have the Spirit to help us repent. But I guess that, I mean, these these stories just come right after another chapter 12. Miriam and Aaron start murmuring and Miriam gets the leprosy. They they stick around for a week waiting for Miriam to humble herself and repent. And then she's healed after that. I, I wanted to mention one thing, though, about verse 12, chapter 3. I looked up this word, now Moses was very meek above all the men which are on the face of the earth. The word meek is also translated humble or afflicted. And I thought, well, he's certainly the most afflicted if he's got two million complainers at his his beck and call (laughs) night and day. But sometimes we separate out humility and meekness. And I assume that this... Moses did not say, I am the most humble of all people. I assume that this was added later, but I don't don't know. I don't know who, who added that part in, but I just really admire not only Moses, but our Savior, who was the most meek of all men, and our Savior who humbly partook of the bitter cup and followed his father and was the most afflicted of all as he took upon the sins of the world in Gethsemane and Golgotha. And then in They finally get to the point where they think they're ready to go into the promised land. And Moses says, okay, let's send some spies in. Let's send out some scouts. Let's check out the landscape. And that's chapter 13 and 14. And every tribe gets somebody.
0: Yeah, this is important. So this is a pivotal pivotal moment here.
1: I do. I really think it is.
0: Because again, you know, there's a short period of purification, uh, relatively short. (laughs) (laughs) And okay, now we're here. You know, we're we're going to the promised land, a promise created and fulfilled, you know, it's in, right in Exodus. We're we're here at the yeah. doorstep. We can and see it. it's
1: interesting that you mentioned that in context because remember he took him to Sinai and said, We're here, come up the mount, be prepared, be worthy. And instead, they fell. They had the the calf. You know, they began worshiping false gods. Right.
0: And they no, complaining about going back to Egypt.
1: And complaining again. Yeah. And yet here they are again at another opportunity to say, I want you to come into the promised land. It's almost a way of saying, I want you to enter into my presence. You know, it's a symbolic come follow me and we'll continue to grow and draw closer together. But that's not what happened. And the 12 spies come back with all they're laden with this food. They bring back great reports of the food and also great reports of the enormous people that are there. Did you read how big I I did the math? You know, so a cubit is about your elbow to your fingertip, you know, it's about eighteen inches. So some of these giants, they're saying, have a bedstead that's fifteen feet long or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're they're really they're they're taller than Mark Pope, you know. They're taller than <laughs> than some of our basketball giants, you know. These people who are six ten, six eleven, seven one, seven foot, you know. They, these giants are, and I don't know if that's an exaggeration or, or what, but the bottom line is they're scared. And I don't think there's anything wrong with coming down and saying, okay, guys, it is going to be a tough battle to get these people out. The land is filled with people, and it is going to be hard. We have really got to humble ourselves and attune ourselves with the Lord. And that is sort of what I see in Joshua and Moses' voice. They say, we can do this. We can conquer. This is chapter 14, where we hear them just cheerleading. We, With God's help, we can do anything. And yet the other spies, perhaps— I don't know why, because these were the princes of men. These were chosen as the leaders of their tribes. And yet— Out of tens of
0: thousands, right? Out of
1: tens of thousands, out of 72,000 people, you know. And yet they say, not only do we not want to go fight them, we are going to start a mutiny. We are going to initiate and instigate a rebellion. And the Lord takes them down. And he is so upset at them that the 10 spies that start this rebellion are destroyed, as well as many, many others who join them. And they have pretty dramatic. The Lord is always dramatic in the way that the earth opens up, fire comes down from heaven, plagues afflict them. You know, as we learn what happens to this older generation, but the Lord wants to take them down. And Moses pleads in their behalf, which is so touching to me. And as we see a prophet going before the Lord saying, you have forgiven them in the past. This is still chapter 14. Please forgive them now. Please be merciful. In the past, you've said that they'll be punished for three or four generations, but you'll still show mercy. You've already done it for two years. Could you please help us out for a few more years? And the Lord says, okay, it's going to be a lot more than two years, though. It's going to be one year for every day they were gone. So it's going to be 40 years total from the time of Egypt. So 38 more years. And... Their carcasses are going to line. They said that they wanted to go back to Egypt and they were doing a mutiny to return to be slaves, to get their melons and their onions. Let's then allow them to not enter the promised land. And they said their children would never be able to survive and never be able to eat the promised land. Well, I'm gonna let their children be shepherds for 40 years here until they're all gone, and then their children are gonna enter it. It's gonna be it's just this beautiful law of natural consequences. You asked for it. This is your accountability. And it's so important that we know what we're asking for. Sometimes, you know.
0: You know I saw the theme in the Book of Mormon too. Where it's like he's basically be careful what you wish for because I Often. will give it, it to it. you as a Lord. I will give it to you. And the commandments are uh, many of the commandments in my mind are that. about shaping our desires and wants to be more spiritual because it's not it's, it's not easy as as we hear, right? You know, yeah, the commandments help shape our freedom desires. Freedom is hard. right? And you know, the theme keeps coming up of. You know, we've talked about this before, but Satan's not really in the Old Testament explicitly. Oh,
1: I'm so glad you brought that up because he's not here at all.
0: But he's 100% here in the theme. Of
1: course he is. Right? But that's because we know how to identify him. We know that these spies have fear and anger, and then that triggers the temptations of Satan.
0: So I, I think this contrast of...
1: And then they fight against the prophet who's fighting against God.
0: Freedom is hard. It's a lot of work, a lot of risk, but... A lot of responsibility. You know, a lot of responsibility. That's a terrific word. A lot of responsibility. I think that's a key one. Because who is responsible for making the decisions? Well, if I'm free, me, I me, right? In a, a slave, I can blame my problems on someone else who's, who's in charge, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's this constant, you know, going back to even Joshua's complaint about profits. I'm like, they're doing your job. I'm like, this was great. <laughs> like I would hope this is why we're here to, why we built the temple so that people can be more spiritual and not looking to the slave driver, right? Or, or the person who's control, this comfort of someone else being in control versus the freedom and of the Well, and, the and this that desire Shusha, of being in control
1: yeah. is beautifully illustrated in Numbers chapter 17 where the Lord says, "Okay, if you want another tribe to be in charge, if you don't like the Levitical organization that God set up here with Aaron and Moses and leading the show, why don't you guys each bring your rod, your walking stick and bring it together with one of your leaders and we'll just see who the Lord chooses. We'll just see." And the miracle is amazing. The Lord's miracles were so dramatic in that era. You know, Aaron's rod not only starts blooming and blossoming, but it bears almonds. It bears fruit. And so that rod is taken and put in the Ark of the Covenant as a witness to who God chose to have his authority and who has the keys of the priesthood in this dispensation. And it was Moses and Aaron. 18. I guess we can't skip 18. We got another tithing. I just love the way the Old Testament, the law of Moses takes care of the poor. You know, the Levitical people are being taken care of by the tithing and the poor are being taken care of by so many laws that we have not only enumerated here, but also in the other books of Moses, where the gleaning laws, you're supposed to leave food around the outside of your field so that those who are poor can come and help themselves when they're in need. And I just think it's wonderful to see the Lord's people taking care of everyone so that there's no poor among them. He's trying to develop a Zion society. He's trying to make a holy people. I guess that's what I said at the very beginning, wasn't it? This whole book is about this journey to becoming a Zion society. But chapter 19 is that ordinance of the red heifer.
0: More symbols, right?
1: Oh, such beautiful symbols of Christ where the entire animal is burned. And usually the skin is given to the priests or to the... Person. And, well, actually, very few times is the whole animal burned. Usually it's just offered as a sacrifice, the fat is burned, and we talked about this in Leviticus. But for this red heifer, they want everything burned down to the ashes, and then the ashes are taken and put in water, and then it's used to determine judgment. And so Christ is the symbol of this red heifer. He will be the judge. He is the one who is completely burned down, and it will be he who determines whether or not one is innocent or or guilty. He becomes sin for us is the words that Numbers 19 uses, which are really beautiful. But I see it also as one of these exodus cycles, something that they're doing, that they're commanded, point to our Savior. He is not just the great and last sacrifice, but he's the red heifer. He will be our judge.
0: Symbolism from the second coming. And the
1: second coming as well. Yeah. But finally, um, in 20, we get the Miriam dying, Aaron dying, and Moses... So fed up that when he's needing water, he doesn't quote the Lord exactly and he gets chastised from the Lord there. And, you know, I feel like Moses, including this story here, to know that he was not infallible, I, I misspoke, that he made mistakes is what I was trying to say, it reminds me of so many times our prophet Joseph said, gave examples that he was, he made mistakes, but there's no mistakes in the revelation. Or our apostle Peter, our beloved Peter includes in the account that he probably dictated Mark's gospel. Mark was scribed for Peter in some historians' accounts, the earliest times that we have. He includes his account of denying the Lord three times on the eve before his death. And I just feel like it's wonderful for all of us as disciples of Christ to say, when you fall, get on your knees, repent, change, and come back. Moses is still a great man of God. He's still... One that the Savior says he is going to be like him, you know, and the Lord says, you know, I'm going to be like Moses. Moses is going to be like me. I'm going to be like Moses, whatever direction we (laughs) want to go. (laughs) And that takes us, I guess, to chapter 21 with the serpent on the rod. So I've been reading these commentary by people not of our faith, and I was blown away when someone said, we do not get this. Why? This is the craziest symbolism I've ever heard of, that we would put a serpent on a stick and they just left it. whereas." The Book of Mormon's explanation, I don't think this has ever been a question. I'm looking at verse 5. Wherefore ye are brought up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness, for there is no bread, neither is there any water. I loathe this light bread. And then verse 6, the Lord sends these fiery serpents out, and they go through this process where Moses, of course, takes the serpent, makes it into brass. And I keep thinking, people are dying. How long does it take to make a brass serpent? You know, do this faster. And he, as he attaches it on, and they, they start looking up it's the book of mormon. We have at least four beautiful references that say this is a symbol of our savior, that Satan is the counterfeit and that we really do have this wonderful image of our savior as the serpent up here if we just look and be healed. Can I read you the Alma yes, one? Yes. Uh, here it is Alma 33:18 to 21. These are not the only ones who've spoken concerning God, the son of God. Excuse me. Behold, he was spoken of by Moses, yea, behold, a type was raised up in the wilderness, and whosoever looked upon it might live, and many did look and live, but few understood the meaning of these things, and it's because of the hardness of their hearts. So God does not want these symbols to be hid from us. He wants us to ask. When we don't understand something, I hope we can be humble enough to get on our knees and ask. You know, what does this mean in the temple? Or what does this new policy mean? Or what does this direction of the church mean? It doesn't fit into my culture. I don't like it. We need to follow this example here. Few understood the meaning because they hardened their hearts.
0: I think that's that's a wonderful point to make, especially liking it kind of our modern day is it's okay to not understand. I mean, there's a lot of symbolism. Symbolism is so that we can learn spiritual things, but the humility— you know, so often I think the natural man, if we can use those terms, the book or terms, goes to murmuring, complaining.
1: The natural was, man goes it to was murmuring. Better,
0: it was better before, or whatever. And it, well, it wasn't better before. Right? It's usually
1: selfishness and pride that leads right. to it. Yeah.
0: Right. And just that humility of like, you know, all these miracles that led me here, blatantly. Like I'm choosing to ignore those and complain, right? It's so, like, you know, the manna, right? It's like you can <laughs> see why the Lord me.
1: says, Always remember me.
0: Always remember. That I think that is the work of the righteous is yeah. to remember, you know, because you're blessed. But that's the yeah. work of the righteous and, is to remember. And
1: did we talk about the tassels? We let's,
0: did not. Let's, let's remember by looking at the yeah. tassels. So this yeah. is
1: back a few chapters. But in chapter 16, the Lord says, I want you to remember these commandments by looking. I want you to have on your undergarment a strip of blue woven into your little T-shirts or your tunics. And that blue is to remind you of the commandments. And that little tassel became more and more important over time so that by the time of the New Testament, the rabbis counted up and— Believed there were 613 commandments in the Torah. And so they had a thread for each one of the commandments. And then they knotted them together and made these the tassels and the fringe on their garment. And do you remember the story when in Matthew, I think it's Matthew 10, where the woman who has the issue of blood for 12 years reaches out to touch the Savior's garment?
0: Yeah, the hem. It
1: says in King James, it's the hem. But in Greek, if you look at other translations, she is reaching out to the tassel she's reaching out to the sign of the covenant. She's touching a witness of the covenant of the commandments that I know that if I can reach out to God, God will bless me. That I know I can find healing here. Uh, so That's wonderful. it's wonderful. yeah, isn't and this that a is sweet this is where the there?
0: commandment yeah. is awesome.
1: Yeah, so sorry about going backwards. I I missed That's okay. the tassels but as we continue on after this sad passing, I'm really glad that the Lord had Moses actually take the garments off of Aaron and put them on his son, Eleazar. And there was a whole ceremony. Everyone saw who was going to be the new high priest. Everyone was able to appreciate that before the passing of Aaron so that there would be no question of the authority to be taken. And we're so blessed to also have God's hand completely, clearly preparing our leader, our prophet, through years and years of maturation spiritually and physically through the hardships of serving as an apostle so that they are tried and true when it's time to receive the mantle of the prophet. And I guess that takes us to an, a very interesting prophet named Balaam.
0: Balaam, yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about Balaam.
1: Numbers 23, 24, 25, I guess, mainly just 23 and 24 here, but it isn't really clear at a f- quick read, but a slow read will show that Balaam... Even though he is not an Israelite, he's up from the Ur- Euphrates River somewhere. But it says, I read this in other translations as well that helped me, but it says he believed in Jehovah and he was going to pray to Jehovah. And we assume that this story falls right at, as the children of Israel are getting on the west, east side of the River Jordan, so They're just about, they're getting close to the point where they're going to come into the Promised Land, crossing over the Jordan River. They're getting close there because they're now in Moabite territory. And the king of the Moabites is the one who is paranoid with this enormous group of people coming into his land. And we pronounce it Balak in English, but it's really Balak. And this king Balak is so concerned. He knows his gods won't do anything. So he goes up to try to find somebody who's believing in Jehovah who will curse the Israelites for him.
0: Okay, and yeah. so he
1: finds this believer of Jehovah Okay. And he's not going to come. He's not going to come. You know the story about the donkey. He says, okay, I'll come. And then an angel comes with a sword and the donkey sees the angel. The human doesn't. You know, I just see God's sense of humor. He has such <laughs> a sense of humor because we know that animals are going to talk in heaven. We know they're going to be resurrected in heaven. All this is in the book of Revelation. And yet the fact that it is a donkey who is more sensitive than the human spokesman for God supposedly I mean Balaam is supposedly speaking for God him? who
0: is this symbolism of stubbornness right right donkeys are the universal symbol. oh, symbolism of, stubborn. of stubbornness yeah. right yeah. and is, he is, is
1: more open to the presence of the Lord than right. the humans yeah I just get a chuckle out of it. every time I think about this story I just love it and as we know he tells the king of the Moabites I will speak nothing but what the Lord tells me to speak and he says, that's fine, that's fine, that's fine. Let's let's work out a deal here. You, I, I need <laughs> you to curse him. You, know, you can say whatever you want. Just curse him, just curse him. And I had forgotten that he keeps asking him to build these altars and he moves them to different locations. Okay, you didn't curse him here. Let's move to another. He has seven altars and it's always the same thing. It's this ram and the ever and he keeps having these sacrifices and at each different place that he goes to, the prophecies are always building up the Israelites and poor king of Moab, The Balak is just going crazy. He's so upset about it. And I just want to mention something. Do you remember who the Moabites are? No. I think the Moabites are descendants of Abraham through Keturah's children. And do you remember later on when we get to Ruth and Naomi? Right. You know, she's the Moabitess.
0: Interesting. Okay, so we tie this back in later. Yeah, yeah. So
1: we're going to hear more about the Moabites later, but... Right now, in this early period of Israelite history, this king is not a follower of Jehovah, and he doesn't get how God works, and he gets madder and madder with every prophecy. And Balaam just keeps repeating things from the patriarchal blessing of Judah, that they're going to be strong, they're going to be like a lion. He says, well, stop blessing them. If you just can't curse them, just don't bless them, you know. But in the fourth prophecy, I want to read this one. It's in Numbers chapter 24, verse 15. Actually, it goes clear to 19, but... It talks about, quote, there shall come a star out of Jacob. And it talks about it that it's not going to come soon. It's going to be a ways in the distance. But in the Dead Sea Scrolls, so these are written by priests from the time of the New Testament who did not think Herod's temple was pure enough. So they go out and live on their own in the wilderness as celibate men, mostly. Josephus said they were celibate at least. And one of the groups is down by the Dead Seas, the Qumran Scrolls. And in this group of Essenes who are living down there, they describe this prophecy of Balaam about the star coming out of Jacob, referring to the Messiah himself. This star is going to be represented in their Messiah. So at least some of them were attributing this to a Messianic. And the Book of Mormon does as well. And it's not completely clear, but Helaman chapter 14 says— Behold, there shall a new star arise, such as one as never has been beheld, and this also shall be a sign unto you. And then in Third Nephi, do you remember when Nephi, the son of Nephi, the son of Helaman, the son of Alma, or Helaman, Helaman, Alma, Alma, in Third Nephi, chapter one, verse thirteen, all the believers are going to be put to death because the sign has not come. There hasn't been this new star out of Jacob, and it says there in verse thirteen, "Quote: Lift up your head and be of good cheer, for behold, the time is at hand." And on this night shall the sign be given, and on the morrow come I into the world, and I will fulfill that which I have caused to be spoken by the mouth of my holy prophets. So I don't know if Balaam is included in there or if if the holy kicked out Balaam, (laughs) But, (laughs) but one of the prophecies is about the Messiah is this star will come out of Jacob, and it is a descendant of Judah that is going to be the Davidic messiah. And our Jesus of Nazareth. I feel like the Book of Mormon not only helps us point to our Savior, but this finally, as Balaam is joining in and working with Balak later on or Balak, we see that Balaam is not loyal to the prophecies and to the beliefs, and that he joins the Moabites in a battle and is killed in the battle. So it's sort of a sad ending to realize that he he was warned by God: say nothing but what I tell you and do not take any money. And yet it appears that maybe that doesn't come to pass. But hopefully we'll get the whole story later on. And when that finishes is when they get that second census again. And we see that, again, the law of Moses defends the women. And there's women from the tribe of Manasseh who say they want to have an inheritance even though they don't have any brothers. And I wonder if this is one way that Manasseh grows to be such a huge number over time is because... I'm sure there were other women that were left without an inheritance, but these women go to Moses, ask, and Moses says, well, of course you should have one. You know, just because there's no boys doesn't mean your dad's name should be marched out. And then we get in Deuteronomy and Joshua, the closing of the Exodus cycle as they enter into the promised land, and Joshua becomes a type of Christ instead of Moses. But the book of Numbers is fabulous.
0: Yeah, this is such an interesting read, especially, you know, comparing to Genesis and Exodus and, you know, kind of coming through here. I was mentioning this earlier just as a nation, how the Lord is preparing them. There's so many prophecies of Christ. And
1: signs and types of Christ. Yeah, there's
0: so many, so clearly when you have, I guess, eyes to see, right? Yes. And so I've loved that. And, and the Lord meets us where we are. And, and he's in the details in of the details. our history.
1: He knows us intimately.
0: And uh, he's shaping his people. We and he, he shows them. He's and, the potter. Yeah, what they need to hear and, and as harsh or as polite as as they will receive. But he's, he's always there. He always shows Amen. up. And always there. Amen. That's the themes for me.
1: Love it. Thanks. See you. you next week.
0: Bye.